Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, December 8th, and I'm Erica Rudin-Luria, President of the Jewish Federation of Cleveland. It's my honor to be here today to introduce my friend and colleague, Eric Fingerhut, President and CEO of the Jewish Federations of North America. JFNA, as we know them, represents 146 different independent federations across the continent of which the Jewish Federation of Cleveland is one. JFNA formed out of two other organizations dating back to the 1930s, United Jewish Appeal and the Council of Jewish Federations, both of which worked to support Jewish communities around the world, particularly in Europe during the Second World War. The mission of JFNA is to protect and enhance the well-being of Jews throughout the world through meaningful contributions to community, Israel, and civil society. Today, that work could not be more important. Prior to the terrorist attack and onset of the war on October 7th, some of JFNA's core priorities included mental health supports to Jewish youth, caring for Holocaust survivors and those with disabilities, community security, and combating anti-Semitism. Today, despite the many miles between Cleveland and Israel, the October 7th terrorist attack the war and rise in anti-Semitism in our country and around the world dominate everything. Jewish federations across the country have mobilized their communities to respond to support victims of terror, to respond to the dramatic rise in anti-Semitism and more. Our Jewish Federation of Cleveland, one of the largest of these independent federations, continues to play a leadership role in this response. We gather here today on the first day of Hanukkah, two months after the most horrific attack on Jews since the Holocaust. We stand here horrified by the loss of moral compass within many of our most lauded universities and recognize that October 7th exposed public hate against the Jewish people throughout the world at a level unseen since 1930s Germany. It is for all of these reasons that Eric's role, his work, and his leadership are so important. Here in Cleveland, so many of us have known Eric Fingerhut for a long time. For some, he was our congressman, our state senator. He served the entire state as the chancellor of higher education from 2007 to 2011. And most recently, prior to his current role, he was CEO of Hillel International, the largest and most inclusive Jewish campus organization in the world. If you have a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, Please join me in welcoming a great friend of our community and a friend of the City Club, Eric Fingerhut.
Thank you, Erica. It's wonderful to be back. I can't tell you how honored I was to be invited to return to the City Cup of Cleveland, and I knew my topic instantly. I wanted to talk about the power of community to do good. Now, I learned about the power of community growing up in this great city. I learned it by watching business leaders and religious leaders and political leaders reach out beyond their specific constituencies to build partnerships and coalitions on a wide range of issues. I watched and I learned as these diverse leaders, many of whom are here in this room today, inspired each other to undertake big projects and challenges. I also learned about the power of community while I was campaigning across the city and the suburbs for myself, for other candidates, and for ballot issues, whether we were building stadiums to keep our home teams from leaving town, increasing funding for schools, libraries, and community colleges, or providing public funding for the arts. I wanted to share with you how I've been able to apply the lessons I learned in Cleveland in the role I am now privileged to fill with the Jewish Federations of North America. As Erica said, 146 Jewish communal organizations in the United States and Canada who care for their own Jewish communities and are committed to the well-being of the broader communities in which we live. And I plan to tell you how proud you should be of your own Cleveland Jewish community and the remarkable Jewish Federation of Cleveland. The Federation right here in Cleveland has historically and continues to lead the way locally, nationally, and globally. Anywhere I go in the world, the fact that I am a communal leader raised and trained in Cleveland, Ohio, is a key section of my resume. It's what we Jews call good yechus, which loosely translates as a good bloodline. But then came October 7th. And now I find that I must use my precious, limited time at this podium to appeal to the greater Cleveland community and through you to any others that are listening to tackle a project of the greatest urgency and the highest moral responsibility. My appeal to you has two parts. First, I urge that we speak plainly and without equivocation about what happened in our world on October 7th, and that we acknowledge equally plainly what must be done in response. Second, I call on us to unite against a clear and undeniable rise in anti-Semitism, which threatens to undermine the very foundations on which our communal enterprise in America is built, a society which is surely the most open, welcoming, an inclusive civic enterprise in world history. Now, it is largely accurate to compare what happened to Israel on, on October 7th to 9-11. After 9-11, Americans quickly understood that Al-Qaeda had meticulously organized and executed a plan to murder thousands of innocent civilians as they went about their daily lives, simply because they were Americans. And we were forever changed by this understanding. It didn't matter what particular grievance may have been advanced by the perpetrators. Nothing could rationalize nor justify such a heinous and murderous terrorist act. I was serving the Ohio Senate on September 11, 2001, and my wife Amy, who's here with me today, was seven months pregnant with our first child. I remember wondering what would become of our world when such unbridled evil could be unleashed on a sunny, cloudless 
September morning. The ways in which the attack by Hamas on October 7th exceed even the moral depravity of Al-Qaeda's attack on 9-11 are hard to address in this or any other forum, but address it we must. The Hamas terrorists did not commit suicide as they murdered others on October 7th, but rather were vicious rapists and murderers who burned babies alive, raped and beheaded women, slaughtered entire families in their homes, threw hand grenades into shelters crowded with teenagers fleeing from a concert where hundreds of others were murdered, and committed other atrocities too numerous to recount in the time I have available. They killed more than 1,200 Jews that day, as Erica noted, more than any in a single day since the Holocaust. And of course, these rapists and murderers took hostages, including infants, children, and women, many of whom remain in captivity today more than two months later, without having been seen by the Red Cross or any other international aid organization. At least when 52 Americans were held hostage in Iran for 444 days, beginning in 1979, we knew where they were in the United States Embassy. Hamas is holding these hostages captive in tunnels and cages underground. Last weekend, I was with an Israeli soldier who was among the first to arrive at a kibbutz near Gaza attacked by Hamas on October 7th. Here are his words. Honestly, he said, I have no way to describe it. Destruction, fire, shooting, and the smell of death everywhere. In the first house, I saw a woman on the floor, naked and tied because she was raped. Her head was cut off. Her baby, whose body is charred and whose head is cut off. In the third house, a room with the bodies of the members of one family, father, mother, and three children lying on top of each other in a huge pool of blood. And I'll stop there. Now, there's yet another difference between 9-11 and October 7th. Unlike 9-11, October 7th was planned not from a faraway land, but from literally across the street. Gaza stretches 25 miles along the coast of the Mediterranean, surrounded by Israel and Egypt on the three sides. The size and location of Gaza is the equivalent of carving out a strip of land along the coast of Lake Erie from Lakewood to East Lake. Imagine if an organization funded by America's enemies built military bases along the lakefront, dug underground tunnels and command centers under the Metro Health Medical Center, armed the tunnels with missiles and rockets, booby traps and assault rifles, and then launched an attack across West 117th Street into Lakewood, killing more than 1,200 people and kidnapping more than 240 others. Imagine if they, thought if they shot thousands of rockets at Parma, Shaker Heights, Medina, Strongsville, Westlake, and communities all across Northeast Ohio. Imagine that they launched missiles at the Cleveland Clinic so that those who were injured by other rockets couldn't be evacuated to the hospital. I was personally at a hospital in Ashkelon, which is not 10 kilometers from Gaza, three days into this war, where missiles from Gaza were aimed at a maternity ward missing it by feet, and instead destroying a walkway that connected the maternity ward to the rest of the hospital. Imagine if they slaughtered hundreds of our children attending a rock concert at Blossom Music Center. Imagine if they systematically raped and tortured women in every Northeast Ohio suburb, your mothers and sisters and daughters. As Peggy Noonan writes in today's Wall Street Journal, the rape torture and mutilation, and mutilation of women looks as if it was part of the battle plan. Hamas used sexual violence as a weapon.
What would we do if all this happened to us? Would we allow this organization to maintain its capacity to destroy? Not in a million years. There is no room for equivocation or explanations, only clarity. The war Israel is waging in Gaza is to accomplish one goal and one goal only, to eliminate the military and terrorist infrastructure that planned and executed the attacks on October 7th. They are doing this so that another October 7th can never happen again. That war is proceeding on pace, with careful planning, with extraordinary care for innocent civilian life, and with unbelievable courage. It will be completed successfully. Now, contrary to the accusations and false claims being circulated on the internet, the protection of innocent lives is a constant goal of Israel's war strategy. Now, to be clear, I'm not a military expert, but frankly, neither are most of the political figures in and out of government who are trying to instruct Israel on how to prosecute this war. It does not take military expertise, however, to understand that this war could be over already if Israel was not taking extraordinary measures to protect the lives of innocent civilians. Israel has the capability to level the centers of Hamas terrorist infrastructure with bombs and drones, including the hospitals, schools, and refugee camps that Hamas uses as its bases of operation. It could do so without ever putting a single Israeli soldier at risk in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The fact that Israel instead does put its soldiers at risk and has lost so many is all the evidence to the contrary that we need. The American people support Israel's war against Hamas because we understand that Israel's fight against Hamas is no different than America's fight against Al-Qaeda or ISIS. The same people who beheaded Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl, who shout death to America and burn American flags, would do the same and worse to us as Hamas did to Israelis on October 7th if given the chance. They must not be given that chance, ever, never. And is there any doubt what America would do if we were the victims of an attack such as occurred on October 7th? Not in my mind, there isn't. To the Jewish community, Israel's fight against Hamas is nothing less than the fight against the Nazis of today. All who live in community with us in every corner of America must understand this. After October 7th, Hamas is to Jews everywhere the 21st century version of the Nazis hell-bent on exterminating Jews in Israel and everywhere. Which brings me to our current situation here at home. As someone who actively and proudly participated in the political life of this community, I have never seen or expected unanimity on any subject. I understand the role of protected speech and debate like that in which we are engaged at the City Club here today. But protected speech and debate is not what the Jewish community in America is experiencing today. I hesitate to give examples because there are so many and the problem is everywhere. But it helps to give you a picture. A picture of a teacher in a public high school in Queens, New York, who's chased down the halls by 400 students, gets locked in a room and has to be protected and rescued by police. Why? Because she posted on her personal Facebook page, I stand with Israel. A picture of a well-known falafel restaurant in Philadelphia attacked in a pogrom-like demonstration. Why? Because its owner is Israeli. And a picture of a Jewish student at Ohio State who was assaulted for 
Well, for being Jewish. Again, clarity is needed. Law-breaking must be met with immediate and serious consequences. We must send the strongest message of deterrence each and every time, not just for the most serious hate crimes. Just as tolerating small acts of shoplifting or drug sales on street corners leads to an epidemic of lawlessness and the decimation of our urban environment, so too will the failure to punish threatening behavior lead to the demise of our civil society if we look the other way. But a successful community does not merely draw a line at what is legal. A successful community has a higher standard, a standard of respect and of personal conduct that knows the difference between right and wrong. Here's a real example. A major public university has a long tradition of political protests being held in a designated area on the college green, in full view of anyone who wishes to listen or learn. These protests occur almost daily on a wide range of subjects. But instead of using this forum, the anti-Israel pro-Hamas protesters moved their protest to the public sidewalk in front of the Hillel building on that campus. From that vantage point, they proceed to scream invectives at the Jewish students entering the Hillel building and those trying to meet or study inside. Is this legal? Most likely, it was a public sidewalk. Is this how we want university students to behave? I hope the answer to that is a resounding no. If we don't have any effective mechanisms as a society to condemn and discourage such behavior, or worse yet, we defend it as an exercise of free speech, then we have given up every tool besides law enforcement that make a community function. College campuses are perhaps the most troubling sector of our society, seeing the dramatic rise in anti-Semitism. And of course, this is a subject that is deeply personal to me. I'm proud of my tenure as Chancellor of the Ohio Board of Regents and then as CEO of the Hillel International System on college campuses. I came to truly love our public and private colleges and universities and to appreciate their role in building and sustaining a vital civil society. Both the public sector through our state and federal tax dollars and our charitable deductions and millions of families, including every one of you, through tuition payments and donations are deeply invested in the success of America's colleges and universities. How do we impact the uniquely complex environment of higher education? Is it university presidents who must lead, contrary to the examples we witnessed in a congressional hearing this week? Is it trustees, donors? What about legislators and governors who, would help, who help direct higher education funding? Well, the answer, of course, is all of the above. Everyone must insist that higher education contribute positively to building and sustaining civil society and not be allowed to ignore destructive behaviors. I'm well aware of the pressures that many students and parents feel about going to the right school. I have two children in college myself. Our oldest is a proud Ohio State Buckeye. But as someone who has spent time on hundreds of campuses and with the students and graduates of nearly every college and university in America, allow me to let you in on the dirty little secret of higher education. There are many, many places where your child can get a terrific education and there is no one right school for anyone. It's time that we base our decisions about the colleges and universities we attend and support, not just on the academics or sports teams or the physical facilities, but also on the manner in which faculty and students treat one another and contribute to building our civic culture.
Today we are seeing too many universities failing that test. Social media also offers a serious challenge to maintaining the cohesion of civil society. Its omnipresence in our lives is indeed a phenomenon we haven't faced before. I remember that while I was running campaigns in this community, we would occasionally see these anonymous flyers containing what we would today call fake news show up on the windshields of cars in shopping centers or church parking lots. It was frustrating and it was hard to deal with, but we were safe in assuming that the impact of these flyers was limited. Today, of course, fake news can reach close to 100% penetration and the truth can never catch up to a lie. While there are certainly legislative and market-based strategies to impact social media companies, and they should be pursued vigorously, the ultimate answer to the ubiquity of social media is the willingness of community leaders to use their resources, their reputations, and social capital to be clear about what is right and wrong, no matter where the misinformation comes from or how prominent it might become. I was a Clevelander. I was raised to be an optimist, especially on opening day. <laughs> so I want to be clear that I am optimistic that both Israel and our American civil society will learn and apply important lessons from this moment. When I flew into Cleveland yesterday, I went through the airport security procedures that we take for granted and that finally seem to be getting smoother with new technology and screening tools. Despite the fact that we've not had an airplane hijack since 9-11, I hear no one calling to dismantle these procedures. Similarly, our Jewish communities operating in the greatest tradition of public-private partnerships are working with law enforcement and government officials to strengthen the security of our institutions and to support our young people and our most vulnerable community members who are targets of anti-Semitism. Security and fighting anti-Semitism are permanent additions to the Cleveland Jewish Federation's portfolio as they are of every Jewish Federation in North America. I have another source of optimism. On November 14th, almost 300,000 people, including thousands from Cleveland, gathered on the National Mall in front of the Capitol to show support for Israel's fight against Hamas, to call for release of the hostages, and to fight back against the rise in anti-Semitism. Speakers at the rally included Christians, Muslims, and Jews, the four top leaders of Congress, the Republican Speaker of the House, the Democratic Minority Leader of the House, the Democratic Majority Leader of the Senate, and a top-ranking Republican Senator, appeared on stage together, arms linked to one another. On what day, on what issue, have we seen such a high-level bipartisan display in recent years? I was one of the main organizers of the march, which was the largest ever for a Jewish cause in American history. There are two other notes from that day that make me optimistic for the future. First, when a large group of people converge on any single location, there is obviously the potential for some damage or disruption. Yet 300,000 people came to Washington and not a single sign was torn down, not a single arrest was made. The National Park Service that manages the National Mall had an area roped off in the middle of the rally where new grass and flower bulbs had been planted, and not a single bulb was trampled on. The Washington Metropolitan Transit System that operates the Metro tweeted afterward that it was their busiest day for ridership since the pandemic, yet everyone waited in line calmly and politely. My favorite social media post from, came from a policeman who was on duty that day 
saying he had been thanked for his service more in one day than in his entire career. <laughs> Political protest does not have to be violent or threatening. This is how a civil society functions. Communal leadership must stand with those who know how to exercise their democratic rights, not with those who harass and destroy to advance a cause. Second, we came to Washington in the midst of the greatest rise of violent anti-Semitism in our nation's history. And we didn't just gather at a stadium or a convention center. We came to the National Mall, our nation's front porch, the most open, visible place in the country, and one of the most open in the world. We are deeply grateful for the protection of the law enforcement agencies who acted to guarantee the ability of all citizens to demonstrate in their nation's capital. But the chosen location was also a statement, a statement that we will not be intimidated and we will not be afraid or back down. This is our country. We helped build it. We have served it. We love it. And we will not allow it to be overtaken by forces of hate. That 300,000 people made that statement with just one week's notice inspires me and gives me the confidence that the forces of good in our society will prevail. Well, as Erica mentioned, today is the first day of Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. I've been asked a question this week by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and more. The question is, will Jewish Americans be afraid to light their Hanukkah candles in public or has them visible in their windows? What the reporters who asked me this question don't know is that they're actually asking a profound and important question of Jewish law. The Talmud, which many of you know is that great compendium of Jewish law and tradition, specifically teaches that we should light the Hanukkah candles in places where the public can see them. It's called Persume Hanes, or publicizing the miracle. The miracle, of course, being the success of the Maccabees who more than 2,200 years ago saved the future of the Jewish people. There have been times in Jewish history, times of pogroms and inquisitions, when the leaders of the Jewish communities advised Jews not to light the Hanukkah lights in public due to safety concerns. But this is decidedly not one of those times. Just as we did by showing up on the National Mall, we will be more visible this Hanukkah, not less. We will light more candles, not fewer. Now, I have spent some time thinking about how it is that I ended up back at the City Club, not speaking about Ohio politics or debating a political opponent, but rather addressing this most serious topic on behalf of the Jewish communities of North America. My friends know that I'm not up on pop culture, uh, but, but I have been watching the new Apple Plus TV show called Lessons in Chemistry. You've seen this? So here, the spoiler alert for those who haven't, the lead character played by the actress Brie Larson goes from being a lab chemist to hosting a cooking show, along the way becoming a single mother and a leading feminist in the workplace. When Larson's character is asked how she ended up where she did, she responds, it's only when you look backwards that you see how it was all connected. Well, I didn't plan this, not at all. But when I look backward, I do see how it is all connected. As a campaign manager and political candidate in this community, I was welcomed into homes and churches and businesses that I would never have been exposed to otherwise. 
I saw people oppose each other on election day and work together the next. I saw people protest without ever threatening their target or destroying property. But most of all, I saw people proudly standing up for their own communities, ensuring that everyone had the opportunity to succeed while understanding that when one of us is at risk, we are all at risk. And so I am here to stand up for my community, just as we stand up for others when they are attacked and at risk. That's what I learned growing up in Cleveland, what I now have the privilege of doing across North America. Thank you. about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Lewis Chaitin. I'm a member of the City Club Board of Directors and the co-chair of the Programming Committee. We're joined, of course, by Eric Fingerhut, president of the Jewish Federations of North America. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org and live radio broadcast at 89.7 WKSU Idea Stream Public Media. If you'd like to text a question for our speaker, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And City Club staff will try to work it into the program. May we have the first question, please? Hi, my name is Joshua. Um, right now, Republican leadership is equating Israel's national security with our national security at our southern border border and demanding to return to a Trump border policies as a quid pro quo for aid to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. What do you suggest for Congress to break through the current political impasse? Um. <laughs> I know the members of Congress from Ohio are looking forward to my advice. First, I, I want to reference what I said during my remarks. The support of Congress on a bipartisan basis has truly been extraordinary. By the way, both for Israel and over the last few years uh, for the war in Ukraine, which is also a matter of most urgent concern uh, to us and should be to our community. After, uh, the, after the attacks of October 7th, the United States Senate passed a resolution of support for the war effort, Israel's war against Hamas, by 100 to 0. Um, the, uh, Ohio, the US House of Representatives passed a similar resolution with only 9 or 10 out of 435 uh, abstentions or negative votes. It's a pretty extraordinary record of support. Um, I do believe that, um, that the uh, package of aid for both Ukraine uh, and the Ukraine war effort, which is essential at this time, um, and uh, Israel's war effort, which is also essential, have bipartisan majority support in both the House and the Senate. Um, and uh, I am confident it's going to be resolved. As a former legislator, uh, I can tell you that uh, there are only certain moments uh, uh, in, uh, in, in the uh, 
legislative calendar when people who want to raise other issues have a chance to raise them. The question is about one of those issues being raised, which is about border security. Uh, it's appropriate to raise issues. It's also appropriate to get this issue resolved. Uh, we are doing everything we can. We urge Congress to get this issue resolved so that the aid for Ukraine and Israel uh, will, uh, will pass at, at uh, the nearest possible opportunity. Um, we are going to continue to work to do everything we can to build and maintain bipartisan support uh, for, uh, for Israel's uh, necessary defense of itself uh, and also bipartisan support for protecting the civil society against this rise of anti-Semitism. One real quick question then, or one that calls on your uh, experience. If it's uh, Federation of North America, why not Mexico? <laughs> but the quick question, you know, that's a quick question. But the question I had, calling on your experience from politics, um, how long do you think the Biden administration will permit Israel to continue unabated without um, uh, a pause or an unlimited ceasefire, especially when many Muslim groups have said they would not vote for him? And if you have a place like uh, Michigan with a quarter of a million Muslim voters, you know, that uh, could right. change the election. Well, now having advised uh, the members of Congress, I'll advise the president. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, it's great being in this position, right? Uh, the, uh, um, so first of all, uh, President Biden's personal support for Israel, both before um, October 7th and since, has simply been extraordinary. Um, and, uh, and I will tell you that it is felt deeply and personally in Israel. If you talk to friends and, uh, and uh, colleagues in Israel, they feel it. Uh, President Biden's trip to Israel after October 7th to extend condolences uh, uh, and, uh, and, and to express support for Israel's response reminds me of, I remember seeing uh, uh, Tony Blair in the gallery of the, of the U.S. House uh, after 9-11 when President Bush addressed uh, the nation in the gallery. It, was, it had that kind of dramatic symbolism uh, and impact. Uh, so, so this, uh, the, the, and, and an understanding that America's support for what Israel is doing up till this point has been essential and critical um, in two ways. One is simply being clear to the world that, uh, that what Israel is doing is what any nation would do after being attacked uh, as it was. Um, uh, and, and the United States has been clear about that. Um, and, uh, uh, and secondly, uh, there are two United States aircraft carriers uh, in the region, one in the Mediterranean off the coast of Lebanon and one in the Persian Gulf. Uh, the, uh, you can be assured that uh, even though there have been skirmishes on the northern border of Israel, that, uh, that the uh, Hezbollah and Iran, which controls Hezbollah, is well aware of the capability of the United States uh, uh, in, that, uh, in that area and that it's having an enormous effect. And we, as Americans, uh, should understand that that's America not protecting Israel alone. That's America protecting America's interest in the Gulf because America is also under attack uh, from terrorist nations 
uh, and terrorist uh, organizations in, in that region. So, so the, the support till now has been, has been uh, very, very strong. Now, in your question, you said, how long will, uh, will uh, the United States permit uh, Israel to, uh, to continue its, uh, its efforts to eradicate the military infrastructure, the terrorist infrastructure in Gaza? And so I'm going to respectfully suggest um, that, uh, uh, that that is not uh, that is not the nature of this relationship, especially at this time. Uh, it is not a question of whether uh, America will permit or not permit. Israel is going to do what it needs to do um, to eradicate the military infrastructure that caused October 7th. As I said in my remarks, uh, while I while while we could discuss the uh, uh, you know, uh, various uh, elements of, Israeli, of Israel's governance and politics prior to October 7th, um, there is a very clear and uh, strongly experienced group of leaders who form the War Council, who have a plan. Uh, if you're following the news, you can see that that plan is being executed uh, with, uh, with, with, great, uh, with great success uh, to, this, uh, to this point. They've obviously also been flexible and open to the ceasefires when the opportunity to recover some of the hostages, uh, some of the hostages occurred. Uh, Israel is going to complete that plan. Um, we, Israel will do everything it possibly can, and we as Americans will do everything we possibly can to avoid there being uh, uh, dissension between, uh, you know, between the American government uh, and, uh, uh, and, the, uh, and the Israeli government. Uh, but it will not change the eventual uh, with the plan or the execution of the plan. Um, the the last thing I'll say about this, I, I see the next question. The next thing I'll say is that um, the uh, the the support in America is broad and clear. Every poll we do polling, every poll shows broad support for what Israel must do uh, and for America's support for Israel. The former teacher and me cannot help but notice. There are a number of high school students in the room, so this is really for them. But what advice do you have for both, you know, in regards to social media and bias in the news, right and left? How can people pursue truth and knowing what's truly going on with Israel or with any other topic? What advice do you have for them? Um, so, best advice is uh, don't get your news from the social media. Um, the, uh, but but uh, in all seriousness, and, and it's wonderful to see the students here today, and I look forward to spending time together. The, um, the, the reality is, um, is that you can't know the truth of information that is coming uh, from sources that you can't verify or check yourself. Um, and, and that's why... Uh, being in conversation with our teachers um, and parents and other community leaders is so important. And if you'll allow me, I know you directed, asked me to direct the answer to the students, but I really want to direct the answer um, to the adults in this room uh, who have the moral and ethical responsibility, I believe, um, to call out these falsehoods um, and to provide, uh, you know, countervailing uh, moral authority, and of course, information. Uh, we did just launch, uh, together with uh, other community organizations, I was really pleased to, uh, to, to, to see, and I thank, uh, ADL uh, and AJC uh, for co-sponsoring 
this, uh, this program today with the Jewish Community Federation of Cleveland and the Cleveland Jewish News. By the way, you know, anything sponsored by the Jewish Community Federation is great. We know that. I've already told you that. But, but, uh, but, but you, most of you also know that the Cleveland Jewish News has a special place in my heart. Uh, my, mother, my mother was the receptionist there for over 30 years, answered the phones. Uh, good morning, Cleveland Jewish News was my mom. Uh, and uh, and I, I'm still convinced that I won my first uh, state senate election because uh, she put my bumper sticker against all rules right by the front door. And if you, wanted, if you wanted your bar mitzvah notice or your wedding notice in a good place, you had to pass by my bumper sticker. So that's, that's the, the secret to my political career has now been revealed. Um, the, uh, Lee Fisher's looking at me and saying, that's how that happened. Um, the, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I, I do, I, I feel very, very strong. So I, oh, I mentioned these other organizations because the Jewish federations together with ADL, together with AGC, Conference of Presidents, which represents a lot of the smaller, a lot of the other organizations, uh, as well as the large organizations. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and APAC just announced something we're calling the 10-7 Project, uh, the October 7th, uh, the goal of which is to seek to disseminate accurate information through the, um, through the media, particularly aimed at decision makers in, in Washington, but obviously we hope it will have resonance outside. Uh, but but it really is the responsibility of each of us, and 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 I and and I, I make this point because we can't. It's not something we can take for granted. We cannot take for granted, as we saw with the you know with the congressional testimony of the presidents, or with. Uh, but it's occurring not just in in elite universities. It's occurring in other places. It's occurring in high schools. It's occurring, um, you know, it's occurring in other settings. Um, that uh, that that the uh, that that the teachers and the adult. Uh, role models are seeking to educate and not to uh, and not to indoctrinate, and so we have to be responsible and take charge of uh, of the learning environments uh, that our young people are in. Um, hello, my name is Kyle Williams. I'm a student at MC Square STEM High School, and I wanted to know from you what did you want to I mean think or want to say to. Um, protesters that call for just a straight-up ceasefire between both sides to get innocent Palestinians out of Gaza in one way, shape, or form. So I wanted to know how, what you thought about that. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for being here. The um, uh, it's uh, the challenge of uh, of determining how to proceed with the military action, uh, or uh, you know, or or pausing is, of course, one of the most difficult decisions that um, that the government of Israel has to make. Uh, I, I I can't and I won't put myself, you know, in their position uh, as they uh, as they make that decision. Uh, I can assure you that the decision to pause uh, for the hostage release agreement that was in place was uh, both was simultaneously. Uh, well accepted um, and also deeply, deeply painful. Uh, because for every life that was saved by a hostage that was relieved, was, that was, uh, excuse me, released, um, there is a pretty clear understanding that more soldiers' lives will be lost because uh, that pause gave time for uh, Hamas to reorganize or resupply um, some of its uh, some of its uh, uh, battle stations. 
Um, and so this is a this is a trade-off that is again painful uh, and and difficult. But Israel made that decision uh, in order to uh, in order to save the lives. And my guess is it would do it again if offered. Uh, however, um, a unilateral ceasefire or even uh, a ceasefire without agreement of what will happen uh, is is not something that uh, is going to happen. Nor would it be uh, advisable uh, to happen, uh, because it would simply allow Hamas again time to resupply and reorganize, um, uh, and uh, and rededicate itself to the mission that it pursued on October 7th, which I've described uh, in in great detail here. And, and I just you know want to be clear, and I uh, the students need to need to be clear. This is a war, and the war has a clear objective, and that objective is to uh, destroy the capacity uh, of Hamas to do what it did on October 7th. Um, and that objective is not yet accomplished. Um, there are, there remain military installations um, that are uh, embedded in hospitals, embedded in schools, embedded in refugee camps that are, that have yet to be, uh, yet to be uh, overtaken and uh, tunnels that have yet to be uh, cleared out. And the war will continue uh, until that objective is accomplished. And as I again said in my remarks, that's what we should want to happen uh, because we should not tolerate or allow a situation where the capacity to do what happened on October 7th remains. Hey there, thank you for being here. Um, I'm wondering, I'm sure you're aware of some of the heinous things that Pastor Hagee has said in the past. And I just wanted to ask, um, if you think that it's worth platforming evangelical leaders like that, despite their support for white Christian nationalism and policies that otherwise are a direct threat to Jews and other minorities, um, is it worth that trade-off simply because there are so-called ally in this uh, issue? Um, thank you for the question. Um, just so everybody understands the context of the question, uh, uh, Pastor Hagee was one of the speakers at the march uh, that we organized uh, on November 14th that I referred to earlier. Uh, and, uh, and the answer is uh, that we, of course, have spent a great deal of time uh, looking at uh, the comments and thoughts of, uh, of, of all the speakers, uh, including Pastor Hagee. Um, many of the comments that were the most deeply offensive. Uh, most of the ones that we saw were older. Uh, we are aware of many efforts that have been made and conversations have been made with Pastor Hagee to, uh, to understand the nature of those comments and to, and to change them. Um, the, uh, and so we would not certainly have provided a platform for somebody who continued to, to hold those same views. Having said that, those offensive views, having said that, um, to be sure, the goal of the march was to present perspectives that were completely diverse across the entire spectrum uh, of American society and American political opinion. Uh, and, uh, and we did do that. As I mentioned, we had, uh, we had Muslim leaders, we had Christian leaders, we had, uh, we had uh, African-American leaders, um, and, uh, and of course, uh, of course Jewish, uh, Jewish leaders who represented the spectrum of, uh, of Jewish life and thought. That was an important part of the goal, was to demonstrate the breadth of the diversity uh, of agreement on this issue. Um, you know, we, as I mentioned when I talked about the, the, uh, 
congressional leaders standing together. There's not much we agree on uh, in America right now. We're, we're pretty divided um, uh, on a wide range of issues, uh, but uh, our goal was to demonstrate that on this issue, uh, we are not divided, and that was absolutely uh, an important part of the project. Eric, thank you so much for being here today. But I, I have a question that's been bothering me for many years, actually about 35 years. When my son, who at that time was an editor on a major college newspaper, asked me, how do you deal with these young Jewish editors who are so pro-Palestinian? Uh, I'd like to hear your comments. I had no answer for him. <laughs> um, so first of all, uh, because, because you've been thinking about this for 35 years, you'll give me, you'll give me a little bit of leeway in the answer, I think. Um, the, uh, I won't take 35 years to answer it, but uh, uh, can I just make a comment about the word pro-Palestinian? Um, because uh, I consider myself pro-Palestinian. Most of the leaders of the Jewish community that I know and members consider ourselves pro-Palestinian. Perhaps for me the most disturbing uh, element of the protests that, uh, that I've seen across the country is the equating uh, of, uh, of, of somehow opposing Israel's uh, legitimate defense of its, uh, uh, of its people uh, with, uh, with being anti-Palestinian, or being the opposite of being pro-Palestinian. There's nothing pro-Palestinian about anything Hamas uh, is, uh, is doing. They've held the people of Gaza captive uh, for, these, uh, for these many years. They use them as, uh, as fodder. Israel's tried repeatedly, back to the ceasefire question from the, from the student, uh, Israel's tried repeatedly to offer you know, escape routes, and, uh, uh, and they've been blocked by by Hamas, there's nothing pro-Palestinian uh, uh, about this. And, and by the way, I want to note uh, that that if somehow uh, Israel's uh, process of eliminating this threat uh, in Gaza was so anti-Palestinian or so anti-Arab, I can assure you that you would be seeing a different reaction in the Arab world than you are today. And don't don't base it on press releases or statements base it on actual actions, of which you are not seeing any. I was, you know, one of the great moments, positive moments I've had in this role, I was at the signing of the Abraham Accords um, at the White House uh, and uh, left that night for uh, Dubai. I was in, literally with, uh, in Dubai on the first day of peace. Um, and uh, by the way, it also happened that that weekend was Rosh Hashanah, was the Jewish New Year, so I spent uh, the Jewish New Year, the first week of the Abraham Accords, uh, in the first open Jewish religious ceremony uh, in, uh, in Dubai. It was a remarkable experience, but I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning this because there's there was truly a warm peace, a warm peace. Uh, in, uh, in Abu Dhabi today, they've built something called the Abrahamic compound or Abrahamic house. There are three buildings of exact same uh, geography, you know, exact same square footage on the same piece of property. One is a mosque, one is a church, and one is a synagogue. Um, and you should visit it for sure. It's now open. Um, there is truly change happening. As you know, before October 7th, there was uh, progress towards 
uh, peace, normalization at least, between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which the home of Mecca, if you think about it, this is an amazing, amazing development. Uh, obviously, those things are not on the front burner today, but neither have they been taken off the table. So we, we do need to keep all this in perspective. Pro-Palestinian would be to eliminate the Hamas threat and get back to the business of building civil society and civil relationships. Now, after, 30, after 35 minutes of answering your question, I'll answer your question. The, um, the uh, one minute per year of your thinking about it. Uh, the, that'll be my ratio. Um, the, um, uh, I, look, there's no question we have, uh, you know, there's diverse opinions uh, in the Jewish community. I'm sure there's diverse opinions uh, in, in this room. Uh, it's also, of course, the case, uh, and I mentioned the polling numbers that show, uh, by the way, something like 90%, the polls show that something like 90% of American Jews are following the news closely, 90%, right? Uh, and then something in the 70s to between 70 and 80 agree with uh, the, the general direction of American policy uh, and, uh, and Israel's policy. But all the polls, whether it's just the Jewish community or whether it's of the American public at large, show a difference by age, right? We all know that. Um, that, uh, you know, that there is a, uh, you know, that there is, a, 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 that among the younger demographic, the, the perceptions of this war are different. Uh, I think there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of explanations for that. Most of us, uh, you know, we come from a generation where uh, we knew Holocaust survivors, uh, parents, grandparents. Um, we remember, I mean, I, I was, I remember the Yom Kippur War, you know, in 1973, sitting in a synagogue in Cleveland Heights on, on Yom Kippur morning, hearing about the, hearing about the attacks. So there's obviously a different environment, you know, people grew up, whereas if you're 18 years old or you're the editor of the college newspaper, uh, first of all, the only prime minister of Israel you probably know is, 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 is Bibi Netanyahu, um, and, uh, and you only know a situation where peace has been, uh, you know, peace has not been uh, possible. I was uh, a member of Congress representing this community so proudly uh, when, uh, when the Oslo Accords were signed. Some of us together stood on the south lawn of the White House. We remember that feeling. This generation doesn't. Um, and so, uh, and finally, I'll say the job of, of college newspapers is to be contrary. That's what they do. Um, but uh, we, will always, we will always continue to educate and work and believe that over time, uh, with growth and maturity and greater understanding of knowledge and history, that people will, uh, will come to positions that we believe are good for our community and our, and our society. Thank you. Thank you to Eric Fingerhut for joining us at the City Club today. Today's forum is in partnership with the Cleveland Jewish News, and forums like this one are made possible thanks to the generous support from individuals like you. You can learn, learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech at cityclub.org. The City Club would like to welcome students joining us from MC Squared STEM High School. And Hawken, we're delighted to have you here today. We would also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by the Cleveland ADL, Cleveland Jewish News, Global Cleveland, the Jewish Federation of Cleveland, Larry Oscar, and Temple Tefereth Israel. Thank you all for being here today. The, the City Club's final forum of 2023 will take place on Friday, December 15th. Author and Professor Manny Teodoro with the University of Wisconsin will be here to discuss the consequences of the bottled water industry and why increasing citizens' trust in tap water means increased engagement in democracy. Interesting. 
You can learn about these forums and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to Eric Fingerhut and thank you to Erica Rudin-Luria for introducing him. Um, and a Chag Hanukkah Sameach, Happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate. I'm Louis Chaitman and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.